Welcome to the Cornell Policy Reviews podcast. My name is Adam Terranoli, and I am the Editor-in-Chief here at The Review. In this episode, I got a chance to sit down with Martine Kalau, an author, speaker, and commentator on the human aspect of current immigration laws and policies. Her novel, Illegal Among Us, A Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship, recounts her life story and her seven-year battle in deportation proceedings, appeals to the Board of Immigration Appeals, and finally obtaining U.S. citizenship. Martine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Your book was so eye-opening and thought-provoking and made the often ambiguous topic of immigration really visceral. Mm. And there is far more nuance to the immigration system than I had had the chance to realize uh, prior to reading it. And one thought I had as I reflect is that every individual, really, uh, who's going through the system has a story to share. And that no individuals, although we often bucket this one topic of immigration, there's really thousands and thousands of individual stories and one policy just isn't going to cut it. And so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about specifically, in the title you say a stateless woman's quest. You know, what is statelessness? Uh, I think that's one thing people don't get. No, thank you for asking that. And what was interesting was it's it's in the title, but it's also in the book cover. So when you see that the image is, it, you know, it's a fence, and then you've got this individual that looks like they're in the shadows, you can't quite make out who she is. That's how I, I categorize or describe being stateless. It's like being in the shadows of being undocumented, mm-hmm. right? Um, stateless people are sort of like the afterthought in the undocumented immigrant, immigrant community because they don't, they don't quite fall into a documented category, nor are they refugees. So according to the United Nations, a stateless person is someone who's not a national of any country. Right. And there's so many ways, there are a plethora of ways that people can become stateless. You know, when we think about, you know, the former Yugoslavia, you know, or the Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic, if there are people who were in, who were part of those states or those entities and left when the entities change, those are ways in which some people could end up not having a home in that in their native country anymore. In my particular situation, I became stateless while I was I was always stateless, but I didn't realize it until I learned that I was undocumented. And, you know, with being undocumented, that is being in a nightmare. But when I learned that I was stateless, I felt like I was trapped in my nightmare. Mm -hmm. No way in, no way out. So ultimately, I was born in Zambia, Lusaka, Zambia. My mother and my biological father from the DR Congo came to the United States with my mother when I was four. My mother and my stepfather died. I became an orphan. And then eventually, a lot later on, I became undocumented. And when um, there was this effort by the immigration judge to deport me, the question became, well, where do we send her, right? Um, When you are undocumented, usually there's a country to send you to. Now, by any means, there you know some of these countries are abhorrent, and you cannot go back. It's not safe for various reasons. Or being a refugee, there are reasons right. why you know individuals cannot are seeking asylum into the United States. But when you're stateless, there is no country that will even accept you. So Zambia wouldn't accept me because um, I learned that I had to, according to their constitution, claim citizenship 
at 18 years of age. I didn't know that because I was born there. So you think automatically you, you get citizenship. But if you were born there but you didn't live there, you needed to claim citizenship at a certain time frame. So I wasn't a citizen of Zambia. DR Congo, which was originally, formerly, well, it was many things, <laughs> but it was Zaire when, my, when I was... Um, when I first immigrated to the United States, and then became DR Congo. So its constitution's, constitution changed, its governance changed, and therefore, um, because I did not claim citizenship of this new government, I wasn't considered a citizen, and especially because I would have needed to get citizenship through my mother and my father, right. who were also not you know, I didn't know my biological father. I thought he was dead and my mother was dead. So in that case, I was not a citizen of Zambia, nor was I a citizen of DR Congo. And the United States also didn't want me. So what happens to stateless people? They have no home. And when they are placed in proceedings and sent to detention, they sit there indefinitely because there's no place to send them. Ironically, the possibility for me, because I was stateless and without any kind of status, was I would either sit in a detention facility indefinitely because I was in deportation proceedings, which is the nice euphemism for it now is removal proceedings, but it's deportation. Or they would look for a third country to take me. But let me ask you, what third country is going to take anyone, right? No one's going to, no country is going to raise their hand and say, oh, I'll, I'll take another, you know, uh, immigrant, um, but the irony that I like to tell people, and I think it's sort of people chuckle, is they were considering Mexico as a third country to send me to. Wow. Wow, right? Yeah. So um, being stateless is just that, not being a national of any country, being in true limbo, being trapped in this nightmare. And there are many ways in which people become stateless. Another, I mean, I hear stories. I know a 90-year-old woman who's stateless, right? Um, I've sat in a room full of stateless people. We're, we're, we come in all ages, all sizes, all ethnicities. It's a global phenomenon. There are 12 million stateless people in the world. There are over 200,000 in the United States. There are no laws or processes for a stateless individual, meaning that Lawyers, judges, no one knows what to do with people like myself, even in the context of undocumented immigration. It's like, but you're stateless, so what does that mean? Right, and that's just one faction yes. of a large population that's right. of people that are talked about yeah, in the immigration. Yeah, absolutely. Field. I mean, I know, you know that another example of being stateless, because there's so many ways in which someone can become stateless. You know, something that I mentioned earlier was, you know, Dominican Haitians, like in right now in Dominican Republic, um, you know, if you can, if they can trace back your ancestry to Haiti, I think there's a certain time frame and, you know, layer to that, um, your citizenship and DR is revoked. So that's another example of a way in which a person can become stateless. So if you were born in Dominican Republic and somehow they trace your ancestry back to Haiti and then you're told that you are no longer a citizen of Dominican Republic, Almost you're not a citizen. Exactly. So now you have no state. Right. And you, you haven't have no moved. So, yeah. Exactly. Wow. So that's just, these are just different ways in which people can become stateless. Interesting. Right? That, that is so interesting. Um, in your book, you say that you, and you did, beat a system intended for you to fail. Mm -hmm. Could you describe what you mean by that and some of the pressing systemic issues mm -hmm. with the system? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I actually I had a conversation with um, the head of the of government studies at um, University of Virginia, and I was telling him that, and he said, "Yeah, I don't. I think this system was meant for people to fail, right? Um, when we look at different systems, whether it's the welfare system and state, certain things are, you know, all these processes are made to." created to be difficult so people can't get through loopholes, right? Mm -hmm. There's very few loopholes that people can get it, get through, and it's just a small minority of people that can do that. So when I say I, um, I beat a system that was intended me to fail was because, one, just thinking about the legal process of it all, right? Acquiring and obtaining an attorney, an immigration attorney, who is experienced in removal proceedings. So I don't think people realize, people just assume all immigration attorneys work on removal proceedings. No, there's a small percentage of attorneys that's, that specialize in removal cases. You can be an, an immigration attorney and you work for a corporation or you, you, know, you work on paperwork or you work on you know, um, you know, H-1B visas, but only a, there's a certain percentage that actually show up and they go to court and represent people in removal proceedings, right? right. So it's hard to actually obtain an attorney and secondly, to obtain a qualified attorney, one who is not inundated with cases, one whom you can afford, um, you know, one, and in many cases, when you're undocumented and you're going through these proceedings, it spans years, right? Yeah. For me, it was seven years. Right. It can be a seven-year process. So let me ask you, who can afford an attorney for over the course of seven years, particularly if you're undocumented? Right. And it's very difficult to even get a work permit, right? I was just going to say, work, and right? work permits are difficult right. during that time. So, so that already is like one particular challenge. How do I even afford an attorney? Um, how do I, and if I work with a pro bono attorney, they're inundated with cases. Right. And they have to prioritize the cases. So unless someone is literally being detained and placed in, you know, a, a jail cell, where does my case fall in terms of his or her priority? So that was a challenge. I went through six immigration attorneys over the course of seven years. So that was a challenge already, right? The second is the courts, right? Um, I remember when I first you know, started, you know, I was placed in removal proceedings. I talked to that, my first attorney, he said, all right, there are three options of where your case is going to be, you know, sent, directed. If we get Judge A, we'll be okay. He, she is known for being pretty understanding and open to, you know, um, you know, supporting, you know, undocumented immigrants and creating a path. If we get Judge B, that's a little murky. Mm -hmm. Bad reputation, but sometimes, you know, just depends on the mood. We cannot get Judge C. This person, bad reputation, this person was asked to leave the Miami court, wow. right? Yeah. And then ended up in Buffalo. Okay. <clears throat> Guess what judge I got? Judge, judge C. C, right? So that is a that's systemic. It's broken. The system right. is broken. So you mean to tell me, like I already knew before going into that courtroom that I was doomed to fail because of this judge and the reputation that this judge had. And there's very little oversight, you know, with this, right? right. Um, so 
you know, that was a piece of that as well. And, you know, something else about with, with the system and the court system is that, first of all, there are about 344 immigration judges. There are over 700,000 pending immigration cases today, right? Yeah. Um, the other piece is that detain immigrants who have been placed in detention when they, when they go into court, 83% of them don't have legal representation. That means they walk into that courtroom by themselves. Right. Because, because immigration is not part of the judicial system, it's part of the executive branch, there is no requirement to have legal representation. The system is designed yeah. for people to fail. Yeah. So even myself, I like to you know, think that I'm pretty educated. I got my master's at the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. I studied immigration law. Even I wouldn't feel comfortable walking into a courtroom by myself. I wouldn't have felt comfortable to present my own case, right? right? And I think that I, you know, I feel very confident in my um, ability to navigate through the English language and laws and procedures. Right. So imagine if there was somebody else who didn't have the educational acumen, who wasn't English, was not as comfortable for them and not necessarily their first or second language. How do they navigate through this space? Right. And then let's talk about children and minors who are showing up, who are in these courts by themselves, right? So that is what I mean by this system is literally designed for people to fail. Yeah. One of the things I, as I read, was thinking was exactly that point of, you know, you had came here when you were four and you had lived here your entire life from That's that right. point. And you were educated here, you had a college degree, graduate studies, and you still had a tough time That's right. getting through the system. And so when, it was when impossible. I, you would think that, that you would fly through given, yeah. given your background and your resume. But that's not the case. That's not the case. And I have actually this diagram that's on my website. I actually turned it into a game, and I'll, I'm actually going to share it during colloquium later today with the group, which is I basically turn my story, my immigration journey, and the timeline into a game. It's like a game board, gotcha. right? Okay. And there are dice at the very top of the game board, and it's to show that it's that random. The outcome is that random. I know individuals that are exactly my age, were undocumented when I was undocumented, who are outspoken and doing all that they can to advocate for immigration, and they're still undocumented today. So when people ask me, well, what is the prescription, Martine? How mm -hmm. did you do it? What I say is, you can do exactly what I did. And I promise you, because of the system and the way that it's in its brokenness, I cannot guarantee the same outcome. All I can promise is that, you know, what I can provide you with are tools to sustain yourself right. during that journey, that marathon. But literally, it's as random as the roll of the dice. Wow. And that's really why the system is broken. So going off that thought, one of the courses we have here at Cornell is systems thinking. And we learned that systems thinking in the field acknowledges that a mismatch exists between individuals and their mental models yeah. and reality. Mm -hmm. And what clouds that is bias and, and all sorts of things. What do you think are some of the prevalent mental models around immigration and how do they differ from reality? I mean, we've gotten into a lot of them, but what yeah. do you think people, what is maybe one or two things that is a common misconception about the system oh that could, I, 
<laughs> There's so many. If you, if you get it down, if you could distill it to a couple, I guess. Well, I would say that one of them is, you know, something I always talk about is the way that the media portrays Im- undocumented immigrants. They categorize them into these two places, these two categories, superhuman or subhuman. And that's all we focus on. And these are the only people that exist within these spaces, according to the media. If you're subhuman, you're a menace to society, you're a threat to our country, you shouldn't be here. And that's why we talk about you, why this is important to discuss. If you're superhuman, it's because you're so brilliant. I mean, you graduated from college when you were 16. You're, you were magna cum laude. You're going to be a rocket scientist. You invented something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why you deserve to be here. But then it's like we miss a whole scope of people, the mm-hmm. majority of people that look like me, that have my experiences, that are hardworking individuals. So I think, you know, definitely that's one of the the um, the stories or misconceptions we have about the undocumented immigrant population. And the other is just assuming that we all look the same, we talk the same, we sound the same, we have the same experiences. Um, and this is actually something that's prevalent even within the undocumented immigrant population. Mm-hmm. I've experienced where we qualify each other like, oh, your story, you don't seem as downtrodden. You don't appear as downtrodden. So therefore, your story doesn't matter or it's not as relevant. And, you know, to add to that, it's the whole image of what the right. undocumented immigrant looks like. I mean, we, you know, we see what the media portrays, which is why I speak. Because I cannot tell you how many times people have, the last thing anyone would assume when I tell them, oh yeah, I moved around most of my life when they ask me where I'm from um, or where I, you know, where I grew up when I, when they ask me where I'm from, you know, they, they usually assume, oh, you must have been an army brat or Mm. your parents are probably diplomats. It's like, no, I was undocumented and stateless, right? Because there's only a certain face that one face that we continue to project of the undocumented immigrant and as long as we do that and we don't see that there are myriad of faces that look like a lot of people right right um a lot of people and they represent a lot of communities then we can't humanize these individuals right right And, and almost the success stories that like you're saying in the media almost in a way because if someone else doesn't adhere to that right. or if that story isn't their story yeah. there's almost a disadvantage that's right embedded in there yeah and a bias that then oh yeah have. I can't I cannot tell you how many times I I used to think oh my gosh you know I can't I can't compete with this story I'm not I'm not as smart as that person I didn't graduate top of my class so there's no way I will ever you know get convince anyone to think I'm valuable in this country mm-hmm. and that's really unfortunate because we don't do that for the average American right 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 so uh, going off of that point what would you say to people if you had the chance to have a fireside chat with everyone in the country <laughs> for the people who say that there's just so much information out there and it just seems so saturating and there's terms, there's DACA, and there's uh, TPS, temporary, TPS, yeah, TPS, temporary protected status, and, and undocumented, stateless. Right. I just can't keep Dreamers. it all straight. Dreamers. Oh, of course. Right. How do? What advice would you give to people to cut through all of that and understand just, you know, from a high level, what is going on? Right. Um, there. I think that. 
I love that. I mean, fireside chat with everyone. <laughs> I think the first thing I want people to know is that just like everyone around the room in that fireside chat, people have circumstances. There's circumstances that are sometimes beyond our control or sometimes they're within our control, but we make decisions for deeper and bigger reasons. And I'd want them to understand that there are a plethora of people, 12 million right now reported, but probably more people who are in this country unauthorized for whatever reason, who lack a status for whatever reason. And I would encourage them to investigate and hold their you know, local city council members, their senators, whomever accountable to provide more stories more diverse stories of who these people are. What do they look like? What is their journey? How did they get here? And understand and show and find empathy. And empathy is really a matter of thinking and assuming that this person is like me in some way and trying to investigate, how is this person like me? How are we alike as opposed to how are we different? Right. So right now in the immigration space, What's so overwhelming is because, why it's so overwhelming is because we always talk about how all of us, undocumented immigrants and all that, what makes us so different? Let's talk about what makes us so similar to the general public, right? right? If we start so there, humanize people, and if people start to understand that this is a story, this is their journey, how could it be, how I might, there's a possibility of me ending up undocumented in another country. Let me think of how. What if I went to Paris? What if I overstayed my visa because of some situation or that my something, my, my visa was lost or my passport was lost. Someone stole it. I didn't have, you know, and I couldn't regain it. And I, you know, I overstayed the time that I had. What, that, what, what does that make me? Couldn't I potentially right. be undocumented, right? Creating those parallels um, to allow people to understand that this is not so far removed from their own experiences. Right. So I'd love for people to hear that and think about that in that fireside chat. Interesting. I'm sure you're well aware election season oh. is ramping up. <laughs> the Iowa caucuses are just a few days away. That's right. And all of the candidates, most of the candidates, have a plan or, or you know, something that might be a plan uh, when it comes to the topic of immigration. Mm -hmm. What do you think candidates are missing in their plans or what are they saying that maybe they don't understand as well as they might think? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that they have a plan. I mean, I, I'm, I'm coming from it from a very, um, you know, personal lens and also from, you know, policy place, but from a personal lens. And when I listen to a lot of these candidates, they use jargon and blanket statements like we will, you know, address the issue at the borders. We're going to, you know, um, you know, we have we want to create comprehensive immigration reform. Um, we will help to promote and support DACA. And because the general public is has a level of apathy or misunderstanding or doesn't really know. Um, they don't, it's it, it sort of gimmicky, like, right. and the, the, these candidates are getting away with it because they're just saying a bunch of nothing. Right. And it's, it's almost as if, oh, you, okay, so now you're talking about 50% of the population. Yeah. Or, so or maybe. if people, right, if people 
kept in mind that every time a candidate says, oh, we'll do something, as far as immigration goes, we will support DACA. If people kept in mind that DACA is not a path to citizenship, right? It's right. temporary and there are limitations there. And if people kept in mind that there are 12 million reported undocumented immigrants, DACA recipients, there's 700,000 DACA recipients. If people kept that in mind and, you know, just considered the ratio, they would question, they would right. want to question our candidates a little bit more, right? Um, so our candidates don't you know, when they say there's a, they'll offer solution, they're actually not saying what solution. What are the processes? For you know, everyone. what's the root? Yes. Yeah. For what, what's the root cause? What are the categories of undocumented immigrants? Who are these 12 million? Are they all DACA recipients? They can't be because they're only 700,000 DACA recipients. So who are these 12 million? Like we they owe us that explanation and we need to hold them accountable to explain that because like you said there's so many different categories of relief there you know there's refugees there's temporary protected status there's a diversity visa lottery program that's being you know revoked or they're cutting down the numbers there're all these different programs so if a candidate only talks about daca they're really not addressing the situation. And when they talk about comprehensive immigration reform, what does that mean, right? Mm -hmm. And is comprehensive immigration reform, is that a Band-Aid to a deeper conversation? What's the bigger problem? What's the root cause of people moving spaces, right, um, and having to? Well, part of it can be is related to climate change. Another part of it has to do with U.S. foreign policy. So that is what we we should be listening for and challenging our political candidates to talk about. So as it relates to immigration, as you know, uh, climate change relates to immigration. This is my initiative. These are my plans. Let's hold them accountable. Let's ask them to be a little to elaborate a little bit more. And there's not so many silos as okay. Immigration policy is a topic for tonight's debate, and then right. tomorrow we're going to talk about that's right. the climate. That's yeah. right. It's kind of thrown in, you know. And so I, I'm not particularly impressed with what I'm hearing because I'm I don't hear anything. I feel like I could run for office. Technically, <laughs> I can't, but. I mean, I could say the same thing. I could go up there and talk about how I'm going to help to, you know, you know, um, remedy DACA. That doesn't say anything. How? Right. How are you going to do that? And then what are you going to do with the other and 11 million exactly, people? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And as there's an influx of um, African immigrants who are coming through and migrating through the borders and coming through the borders, the U.S.-Mexico border, what do we do about that? Right. So that's a bigger issue that has... It, comprehensive immigration reform does not address that conversation. Right. There's a deeper conversation, finding out why. Why is this happening? It's a global conversation. And so that's what I'd want to hear more from you know, our political candidates. It makes you appreciate the word comprehensive a little more and the power that that can really... That's right. It out. sounds really good. Right. But oh, we don't we'll know do what that... Exactly. Yeah, of course. We'll just do some comprehensive right. reform. Yeah, it's comprehensive. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. And there's very little talk about this, you know, the systemic remedies that need to be made, right? right? Because we're With really just talking about the output. We're talking about the output. We're not talking about the systems that will, to reinforce, you know, comprehensive immigration reform right. or what right. have you. We're not talking about that. The courts are a big deal. Um, you know, 
you know, something that I've been thinking about is how do we incentivize more law students mm-hmm. to have an interest in immigration law? We need more immigration lawyers and we need more immigration judges because right now, you know, because there's a shortage of immigration judges and we got to, you know, we have to get through all these cases, lawyers who may not even specialize in immigration are being appointed to immigration judges. Oh, wow. That's yeah. re- that's what's happening. And they have quotas on how many cases they have to go through in a given year. So if you're, you know, if you're an attorney, a tax attorney, and you've been um, appointed to immigration judge and, um, you know, and you are given a certain number of cases, I think right now the quotas, they have to get through like a thousand cases in a year. Wow. Right? How much effort are you going to give and put right. for each, you know, for each case that comes into your courtroom? Yeah. Right? So these are things that need to be discussed um, and there need to be remedies and processes that need to be put in place. And we need oversight committees for yeah. a lot of these, you know, categories. Yeah. So that's what I think as far as political candidates and what <laughs> they need to really be elaborating on. Well, thank you. I wanted to end on addressing something for some of my MPA colleagues. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your graduate school experience and why why public administration and what people who are thinking about an MPA, why maybe they should pursue that path. And for those pursuing that path that want to get into immigration, some general advice for those. Yes. Well, you'll be maybe surprised to know that I applied to SEPA. Oh, really? And I got into SEPA when I also was applying to Maxwell. I was wondering I just, if it was SEPA because you yeah, mentioned your book I Cornell, did. and I said, "Oh, I wonder." Yeah, which I applied oh, to SEPA. I got in, but I didn't. Um, I couldn't afford the tuition. I couldn't get financial aid. Gotcha. I ended up at Maxwell because I got a full grant to go there. Um, and for me, it was partly survival. I mean, that was really my, um, what was driving my decision to go to school right away because I literally graduated college and three weeks later I was in graduate school. So part of, you know, if I look back in retrospect, I would have taken some time to work first and, you know, experience being in the workforce and then come back and apply that, those experiences very much like what many of the individuals in the SEPA program are doing. I really commend them for that. But I went immediately out, out of uh, college, undergrad to grad school for survival reasons. Um, for me, you know, I decided on public administration, public policy, because it was interdisciplinary. Mm. I felt that that was really important for me. Um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go the international you know, relations, international policy route, if I wanted to go immigration law route, what route did I want to go? And so I felt like the the program, uh, the, the public, public administration program was one that would give me insight and a scope into various areas. And then I could decide if I wanted to continue down that path and get a doctorate or a PhD or, you know, or a JD at some point or not, right? So that was one reason. The other reason was because when I looked at the curriculum and I looked at the coursework, I mean, just looking at the SEPA coursework, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, um, you know, just widespread, the public administration, public policy programs across the, the, you know, the nation are phenomenal because it exposes 
you to so many different facets of what's going on nationally and internationally and the representation of you know your peers from all these different parts of you know um, the, the globe as well as uh, industries right and professions allows you to learn more about yourself and figure out exactly how you want to navigate your career and for me doing that allowed me to you know um, you know ask the, the necessary questions and challenge even my immigration attorney at the time. So part of it, like I said, that survival mechanism was also because I felt that my attorney at the time, I went through six, remember, um, one of them was committing malpractice, mm -hmm. was not making me a priority. And so I thought I need to develop my voice. I need to figure out my own case. So what program is going to help me do that? And for me, a public administration program would allow me to do that because I could take courses in the law court, in the law school. I could take government courses. I could learn about the statistics. I could learn about the economic implications of being undocumented. I could equip myself and be my own and greatest advocate. And that is exactly what I know. And I, I'm even seeing as I'm talking to SEPA students, that's really what this program allows you to do. You know, it's a foundation for that, for being an advocate, being your own advocate for whatever initiative um, you want to, you know, focus on. So, you know, I really, really just, I, I commend the program and I think that just it's important for people to consider something like this. And I don't know how long the, the SEPA program is. Is it? Two years. Two years. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Two years? That's it? That's great, you know. And then if you decide you want to get a, you know, another degree to tack on it, that's phenomenal. If you decide you don't, it doesn't matter. But the other, the last thing I'll say about this too is because it was interdisciplinary, I also got to hone in on skills that I was not comfortable with. Mm. So for me, it was the numbers. I did not feel comfortable with, you know, even dealing with numbers, economics, statistics. That was not something that I liked to, to do. And in taking the quantitative analysis courses that I took and understanding the numbers and being able to know how to use, have the numbers facilitate discussion was really, really important and powerful. And how to look at statistics, how to question the numbers that you're seeing. I mean, these are things that have absolutely helped me on this journey of what I'm doing today. So I, I really commend the program yeah. and I, I'm, you know, a big believer in a a master's in public administration. Yeah. One of the things for me, and I, th I think you might feel the same, is how to weave statistics and numbers into your story and how That's to really right. be a storyteller with yes, that. Yes, absolutely. That's really critical. You know, what I do is I consult and I do professional development uh, training for uh, sometimes corporations. Now it's spanning corporations as well as, you know, nonprofit and government organizations. But when I go to these corporations and I'm talking to people in finance and I say, you know, when you're in a meeting and you're talking about these numbers and you're trying to drive the bottom line, mm -hmm. you need a story. Right. It's a, right. you know, business storytelling is critical. You just talk about numbers, it doesn't mean anything to people. Yeah. So absolutely, it's knowing how to use those numbers and um, tell the story. Martine, Thank you so much for your time. Thank I you. found this conversation to be really insightful, and I know all of our listeners will feel the same. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it.